heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. This has been a pretty thorough interview. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you think, little spare. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp and as always I'm joined by the One Nation candidate for Campbelltown, Adam Zara. How are you tonight, Adam? I'm pretty good, Stephen. How are you going, mate? Yeah, pretty good. I haven't been back in this room uh, the last couple of weeks. I was in your, your hood for a while and then we're out with MK, so it's been very busy with the uh, election happening at the moment. So how's, how's your campaign going lately? Um, the campaign's going really, really well. Um, we've been getting a, very, a lot of good feedback. We've been able to really stick it to um, our seated member for Labor because they just haven't got the results. They're, they're just not coming up with anything. Sorry, they're just, you know, I'm going to say it again. Sorry, Dr. Robin Cosford, I know you, this is all about you, but um, this just one minute, like, you know, eight years in eight years in government representing Campbelltown, um, we have a road that's killed over 30 people in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, hundreds and hundreds of animal strikes. And they promised $2 million in the promise to plan the upgrade for this road, even though there's 15,000 houses going in there. And, um, they, and and with West Invest money that the Liberal government has sent across to us, they're going to spend $76 million on upgrading an art centre. That, Stephen, you've seen it. It's not even that old. It's a pretty contemporary, awesome building. And instead of saving today. lives or saving animal lives, they're going to um, upgrade an art centre that no one, that's, let's face it, is minimally used. It's, it, you know, I don't think I've ever been to the art centre apart from a Christmas party I went to at the start of the year, uh, at the end of last year, uh, this year, so uh, last year, whatever it is now. So, um, yeah, so it's pretty disappointing what they're doing and they don't take Campbelltown seriously and I'm just trying to get the message out there to everybody that, you know, it's time to end the Labor letdown and we're getting haunted by Liberal because... Let's face it. Who's ever, who's really heard anything from that person? So it's uh, and it's time to uh, vote for One Nation and get somebody who's in there who's going to fight for the area. So that's my spiel for the whole uh, campaign. But I, I'm very, I'm looking very forward to see. Well, we've got Paul back again, and um, we've got uh, Robin Cosford here again. So uh, or here, um, and we're very excited for this. But um, we will. Uh, leave it to you, Stephen. <laughs> well, just quickly, we do have Paul Vallejo back. Uh, our resident nuclear specialist. He, he corrected my pronunciation recently, so thank you for that, Paul. And uh, obviously you're very uh, passionate about this subject that we're going to talk about. Obviously you joined us for our, our interview with Dr. Peter McCullough. How are you, Paul? How, how I know you're very involved with the election coming up as well. How's everything for you? I'm doing great. Uh, great to see all of you. Uh, you all, I'm very grateful to all of you for everything you've done since the beginning of, of what, you know, since I've, I've started to know you. So uh, thank you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you more again, uh, Dr. Cosford. And uh, yeah, let's take it away. All right. So we'll jump in. We have Professor Robin Cosford, and this is someone that I've tried to reach out to ever since the federal election, but she, I found it hard to contact her. But you know, I think we're up to episode 50 now. I would have had on episode one, but uh, how are you tonight, Professor? 
I'm great. Thank you. Yeah, call me Robin for this. You know, I save titles for when I've got to get past secretaries or I'm on stage. So Robin is Robin, and it's just really good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now that's that's awesome. Now I think for a lot of doctors, the pandemic was really a, uh, a turning point or a fork in the road for them. But for you, can you just give us a little bit of a background of who you were, uh, you know, pre-pandemic and and what you were what you were involved with? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been fortunate in, in a way that, that I, I basically knew what was coming was going to come. was going to come. I just didn't know when. I've been working in the field of nutritional and environmental medicine and particularly children's neurodevelopmental disorders, autism, all that kind of thing, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and so on for 35 years. So so I've been in this space of, of needing to look at what, what's the effect on health of vaccinations, what's the effect on health of what we're doing in the environment. Uh, I was a researcher with University of Newcastle for a while, and they, at the time, were, were the world leaders in researching chronic fatigue syndrome. Tragically, that group split up, so it, it didn't go to fulfilment, which was, was very sad. And I was a conjoint lecturer with University of Newcastle as part of that. So in that research, what we were looking at was that was the metabolic abnormalities in chronic fatigue syndrome, because it's a metabolic disease. It's not just, oh, dear, you're too tired. It's a real metabolic disease. And at that time, in the 1990s, that was not recognised. It's more recognised now, but it wasn't recognised then back in the 1990s. So I ran those same tests that we were doing on the chronic fatigue patients on some of my autism and ADHD patients and, and found striking similarities that really sent me down the track of looking much more into uh, the biochemical abnormalities and the gut microbe abnormalities in those kids. So I, was, I brought the um, biomedical treatment of autism into Australia in the late 1990s. I ran two international conferences back then, 1998 and 2002, and actually had Andy Wakefield uh, state to come out for the first one of those, but unfortunately things erupted for him just at that time. So I had his offsider come out instead, and you may have heard of Paul Shattuck. He was the lead at the time he came out. So, so I've been in this game of looking at this stuff for, for a long time. So uh, I was a senior lecturer for APNA, the Australasian College of Nutrition and Environmental Medicine. So, yeah, I, I've been, I was lecturing and teaching and, and researching in these fields for a long time. And from what I can understand, when the, the pandemic kind of struck and the vaccine roller began, uh, you actually retired from uh, what you were doing because you could see, uh, you know, what APRA was kind of like doing with doctors and things. Uh, can you touch a little bit on that and maybe then just go into what actually is APRA? Is it a government body or, you know, what is it exactly? Good question. Uh, so I already, I've actually had three run-ins with the medical system before COVID arrived. And, and that's because that for a long time it, it's all been about you have to follow protocols, you have to fit a nice, neat little box in your profile in terms of how long you see patients for, the script you write, the pathology script you order, et cetera, et cetera. It had to be exactly the same as, as standard. So my profile wasn't. So I've been investigated three times, as I said already. I got through each time. But on the third time, they said, we're coming back for you in 12 months. So then COVID struck. And... Uh, I did, as many other good doctors, conscientious, you know, doctors who genuinely care for their patients and, and were looking at, at things. I was writing ivermectin scripts. I was writing mask exemptions. I believe no one 
but no one should wear a mask, except surgeons and nurses in operating theatres and dentists in, you know, peering down, uh, peering down people's mouths. But other than that, no one should wear a mask. So I was writing mask exemptions and vaccine exemptions where I could find a, um, specific blood abnormalities, immune abnormalities I was looking for that were justified. So when they then put out APRA and the medical board and the medical etc. put out their statement in March 21, their directive to doctors saying that we had to comply with the government health directives and beyond comply, we actually had to actively promote. And there were articles coming through all the medical journals telling us how to promote it. We had to actively promote. Uh, so I was obviously all would be investigated and, and suspended. So obviously... I was not complying with the APRA Medical Board directives. So I knew that when they came back for me in 12 months' time, there'd be no questions asked. I was a cook goose. So that, that was just obvious. So, so it really was that I had to go on call. Oh, I was going to say something. Who I believe you know, I was speaking to him this morning. And uh, he was talking about the impossibility of informed consent uh, in the kind of environment that APRA was creating. Uh, in fact, one, his great quote, I thought, was uh, they've made conformed, informed consent illegal, um, you know, by, by putting doctors in an absolutely impossible position, ethically, morally, and, 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 you know, but very few doctors have done what you have done to show the courage to, to not be a part of that system. I, I have to say hats off to you, and if, if there's anything else that you want to say about the position that they've put doctors in ethically uh, and, and, and anything regarding the Nuremberg Code, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, most definitely. That's exactly it. We have a code, and this is the crazy thing about it. There is a medical code of conduct that is written, and it is written in the medical board things for us. It's on our website, and we are supposed to comply with that code of conduct, and yet... This very directive that was given to us is in 100%, you know, opposition to that. We cannot comply with the code of conduct and follow the government directive. We cannot give informed consent because if we open our mouths saying anything, hinting anything negative about these injections, we're in breach of the, the government directive. But beyond that, we couldn't give informed consent anyway because we actually had no information to give informed consent on. Right, Pfizer wasn't releasing. We didn't have any data that we could go on. We had no trial results we could go on. There was no history of use we could go on. The very sheets put in the injection vials were blank. So it was totally 100% impossible for any doctor to give informed consent and be in compliance with what the government was saying. And so doctors were forced to make a choice. For me, that was a no-brainer because I'd been sitting on the edges of the system. I managed to stay in it for 35 years. But, but I'd been looking at it and pushing its boundaries for 35 years. So, so for me, it was a no-brainer. And, and so this is where many doctors were caught. And again, because, and the government knows all this, doctors have been hmm, instilled, let's say, right from the beginning, all the way through med school with the whole pharmaceutical paradigm. They are not taught or were not taught, I think it's still the same, Biochemical nutrition, not. Health and wellness, no. Lifestyle measures, no. None of that. You know, none of none of that is taught. What's taught instead is you have to recognise 
the it's, it's it's algorithmic training now, straight algorithms. This check this box test all the way down. Find your disease name. Stick the person in that box at that disease. Now, what's the drug that fits that box? Nothing so, to so, do. So, Robin, it, from what I'm getting with them, the government body of Afra, um, is that they're starting to define, um, or they're starting to actually treat patients, and you guys are just starting to deliver deliver medication. So there's still the process where you need to have a script to get certain medication. Do you think that the scripts again? We already, I already know that scripts can be written online, and you can, don't even have to see a doctor really anymore. They can do a FaceTime with you and diagnose you and things like that. So, um, is it now becoming more of a treatment by bureaucrats and not doctors? Yes, exactly. And that's there's several things here. As I touched on the algorithm, the algorithmic treatment. That if you can just run it by, if you've got this this pathway, chum chum chum. That can easily be taken over by, let's say, AI. Easily, yeah. it's only an algorithm. What's the, what's the end solution? Right, the drug for the, for the box. So, so that part's easy. That takes away completely from any clinical acumen. Clinical skills are out the window. They're gone. They're, they're irrelevant. And as you correctly we, say, we actually do. There are organisations now who are making their money purely by online script writing. These guys don't even take a, a history, a drug history. They've never seen the patient. Just online script writing. So it, it's a farce. It's an absolute farce. Gone are the days of the good old-fashioned family GP who spent time with people, who actually knew his patients, knew their family, knew the social circumstances, you know, knew, yes, I can't prescribe this or that, they've got this sensitivity, that, that. None of that. That's all gone. You can't do that in five-minute medicine, and you can't do that operating an algorithm. Do you, just a quick follow-up with that. Do you think because of the implementation of the kind of like cookie-cutter medical centre now where you have a, a flow of, you'll have a, a, a medical centre of five or six doctors, they swap and change and chop and change and one leaves and another one comes in and, you know, it's also busy and so, also overrun and you're in and out, in and out, in and out. And I've watched a video of yours, so I know that you used to take on patients and have like a two-hour consultation and things like that. So, um, you know, we're in and out now pretty much within 15 minutes. And COVID brought in the whole new thing of, hey, just ring up your doctor and speak to them over the phone. You don't even have to go in anymore. So, um, yeah, that was um, – do you think that was kind of like the beginning of the end of having that traditional, you know, like Dr. Quinn medicine woman style kind of treatment? Uh, the end was coming anyway. Uh, but, I mean, you're lucky to get 15 minutes. Many places it's only five minutes. In the medical centres, it's, it's it really is only five minutes. I'll, I'll go back a, a number of years. Uh, when I first started med and my third child was, was a new bubby, I went into the local medical centre and worked there and did the weekend shifts. Um, but I wouldn't do five-minute medicine. I still practised solid medicines. What ended up happening was that they'd refer all the complicated patients to me so that my profile looked even worse. I'm seeing everyone for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. But their difficult patients got managed. Uh, you cannot do good medicine in five minutes. Impossible. All you can do is write a script. 15 minutes, uh, you can do a little bit. But they've set up, and again, people don't know this, they've deliberately, I believe, set up the Medicare system 
so that doctors' best remuneration on the Medicare system comes if they see patients only for five minutes. And this is the this is the financial incentive behind the medical centres. It's a disincentive for any doctor to actually spend time with the patient. And it takes time to put in lifestyle measures. It does. It takes time to take a proper history and a family history and so on. It just takes time. So, yeah, the system is deliberately, I believe, geared towards the five-minute cookie-cutter medicine. Yeah. And so certainly when COVID came along, that made that even worse uh, because, yes, the telehealth got introduced, uh, so less and less communication with, with patients. And then, of course, the whole thing of, of the injection clinics where people are being injected, and I don't won't use the vaccine for these things, but where people are being injected with total disregard, absolute total disregard for anything to do with their background, health, history, allergies, nothing. None of that's accounted for. No one can get exemptions, and you just have to go and do it. Uh, I, for one, wasn't really aware the degree to which the medical profession and, and the trust relationship was was already breaking prior to COVID. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, a latecomer uh, to, to this. But, you know, what I've seen and what you're describing is really a complete breakdown in the trust between the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, not only do they have financial incentives that are not about health prior to COVID, but now you know, we can't even trust that the doctor is giving us their own best advice uh, when their hands are tied by a regulatory body whose incentives have nothing to do with patient health. And everything about directives from even sometimes international bodies whose agenda we don't even really, well, we, we certainly had no say in. Um, and, and yeah. What is going to, I mean, the, the damage to the reputation of the medical community and, and, and then how do we reform medicine afterwards, hopefully that we will. Do, do you have any thought of how, how medicine is going to evolve after people realize just how bad this is? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, the, I guess before we can evolve and develop medicine again, we've got to deal with the aqua question. Because at the moment, as it stands, anyone who tries to practice medicine outside of the aqua system is still going to be in trouble. So, and that coming back to your original question, I think it was Adam or maybe it was you, Stephen, uh, yeah. about APRA. APRA is a very interesting body, which is not actually part of government. And some of the same thing with the medical board. So, so these are non-governmental bodies that are basically self-appointed. And so here we go. There's a nice site. I'm just, I'm just looking here. It's got, it's got APRA ABN. So that's a, I don't know yeah. if I'm being a little bit naive or. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? An ABN. Mm. It's not a government. It's not actually under the auspices of government. So it's not answerable is the point. It's not answerable to government. Neither is our medical board. Not answerable to government. There is a superior touching on the international body, an organisation called FASB, which is an, an international body that apparently is able to exert control over all, well, not all maybe, but many countries, certainly your Western countries, medical councils and medical boards. So there is an international overseer that, again, is clearly nothing about actually good medicine 
but is about bringing things into control. Because thinking all that through, if they are able to control their doctors so that their doctors will dish out whatever they want them to dish out, then, uh, yeah, it, it certainly looks that, that this is this is what is happening, you know, that, that we have external control and we have organisations within Australia that purport to be governmental, you know, we, we think they're governmental, so, so in that sense, how or why does APRA have any kind of power or legal whatever to tell doctors what to do? It's not in the governmental body. So these are issues that are now starting to be challenged, you know, in the legal system. But it takes a while to do that. You know, it takes a while for the for the doctors to wake up to what's happened because we all started, well, not all of us, some of us who, I said, already knew the system and, and opted out. I knew there was no point doing what's happened for many others. So there was no point hanging around and trusting I'd be okay and then make nice letters to the department. I've been through that three times before. I know how the system works. You, oh, that we've got many doctors. I, we don't know exactly our numbers. We can't get the numbers, but 100, 150? We don't know, really, who are suspended. And, and to me it's like a state of suspended animation because they can't do anything else. They're not allowed to speak out. They can't practice medicine, nor can they go into any medical-related field. They are just plain stuck. So we've got some doctors who had no income for three years, not been able to work and no income for three years. So it's so that, it's a it's a busy situation. So those doctors that are suspended, it's not necessarily because they've done anything sort of like towards malpractice. In fact. It's more to do with the opposite of actually doing, of, of, of abiding by the Hippocratic Oath and saying, I will do no harm. And so, they, so, they, so, these, so these doctors are true doctors who, who I want to treat me because I've got no faith in doctors anymore. I haven't been to a doctor since COVID, so basically since COVID and all that kind of stuff and we weren't allowed to go in. I haven't been to a doctor in about two years. I've got to be honest with you. And yeah. I'm, I'm just praying that I don't get sick because I just don't want to go to a doctor anymore. I have no faith in them. Um, in fact, and, I, and I've got to ask you about this one as well. Like I've stopped a lot. The, the Hippocratic Oath is so important. And I think Australians are brought up to believe, especially that, you know, the doc, what the doctor says, doctor goes, and then they're going to do the best interest for you. So you have to go speak to your doctor. And provided you're honest, you're going to get the best treatment possible. But now what you're saying and, and in previous casts and stuff that you've done before, is that no? In fact, if um, if APRA want you to like, I'm going to just use a different example other than the, than the COVID stuff, okay? Just to try and take it a little bit away from that for a second. Statins, yeah. statins for cholesterol yeah. and heart disease and stuff like that. Now, this is something that's close to home for me, and I don't mind. I'm an open book. I don't care. Yes, I have high cholesterol, and I whatever, right? So doctors, as soon they seen me as soon as and put me on statin straight away. So then I got aches and pains and joint pains and all this kind of stuff. And then they had to keep through. Now I'm under the advice that I have to take statins for the rest of my life, otherwise I will die of a heart attack. Now I'm reasonably reasonably healthy, and no one ever tried to assess why my cholesterol would be out of line. Or do anything like that, exactly. you know. Like, and you know, so is with with something as simple as statins, which is considered like, you know, to be honest with you, statin is well for people in the know is kind of like in the world of ivermectin. We know it's great, we know it's safe, we know it does a hundred different jobs, and then it just keeps throwing these things down your body. Like, you know, in your opinion, is there 
is am I right to question the doctors? Is, is a statin just something to get you on to limp you a by? Yeah, wow. I, I just uh, did a lecture a week or two ago precisely on all of that. So, so statins are another one of the pharmaceutical industry's huge money makers. But they have a huge number of people around the world taking, I forget my exact number of how many, but it's it's huge. So have we any evidence, let's backtrack a bit, have we actually got real evidence that high cholesterol directly relates to heart attacks? No, we do not. When you go breaking it down, no, we do not. And there are layers and layers to this. However, there is a, another side. So there are several sides to this. The first thing is the body, we need cholesterol. We need it. We make it ourselves and we make, depending on how much you're eating in your diet, but between three and ten times more than you can eat, than people eat, right? We make most of the cholesterol that's in our bodies. So why does the body make it? Because we need it in our cell membranes, we need it to make our steroid hormones, we need it in a lot of places. It's really important. So because it makes steroid hormones, we're talking sex hormones, we're also talking about corticosteroids. So these are things that the body uses when it's in a state of inflammation or state of stress. So why might the body be having high cholesterol? So we start looking in underneath and you start finding that that uh, there is often an underlying disease process that is causing the body to make cholesterol as an actual protective thing. So do we shoot the messenger, which is what medicine's doing? Do we shoot the messenger or do we find out why is the body giving this message? We have to dig a bit deeper. Yes, there is a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia where some people in their family line will have, and I don't just mean a little bit high cholesterol, I mean high cholesterol. They will have 8, 9, 10... All right, because that's where I'm at. I'm at about eight, so, eight and a half. So in which case, again, even the familial hypercholesterolemias, when they properly analysed it, do not have an increased risk of heart disease per se. The key is, and this is where we need to do another set of testing that standard medicine don't do, and, and this is where we further break down those lipids and have a look at the size of the particles in them and whether or not they're oxidized because atheroma, atherosclerosis, our cause of ischemic heart disease, only occurs when the macrophages, which are like Pac-Man cells inside the blood vessels, swallow cholesterol and they only swallow damaged cholesterol. They swallow cholesterol, it kills them, they die off, they accumulate calcium and so on. So what's this issue with damaged cholesterol? For the cholesterol to get from the bloodstream through the endothelial cell walls so that the into the tissue behind the blood vessel lining, the molecules have to be a certain size. So you can do a test that measures the size of your cholesterol particles. If they're big, no problem, fine, they're not going to get in. If they're small, underneath 268 angstroms is your magic number, but if they're too small, they can get in between the endothelial cell gaps and then they get into the tissue. The next problem comes if they then get oxidised, reactive oxygen species, you know, oxidative stress, all this kind of stuff that people might have heard of. If they get oxidised, once cholesterol is oxidised, it's a damaged molecule, it's a dangerous molecule, it'll create more inflammation. So what he tries to get rid of it, this is where the macrophages come along and gobble it up. So I would suggest that what you do is you get what we call a lipid profile test done. 
you do some of this more exotic lipid testing, you actually, and, and anyone who's got high cholesterol, I get them to do that so that I can actually see, all right, what's happening in their cholesterol? Is it mostly big? Is it too small? If it's too small, what do we need to change to make the cholesterol particles bigger? Because, again, people aren't told there are lots of different types of cholesterol carriers according to where in the body they are, what their purpose is. Are they picking up cholesterol from the gut, taking it to the liver? Are they taking it from the liver to the cells? Are they picking up from the cells? They're, they're different cholesterol molecules. So, so this can be analysed. And if, if your cholesterol molecules are too small, fine. We fix that, we get you on the things to make them bigger. If they're oxidised, okay, we have to look at why, you, why have you got too much oxidative stress? Do we need to put in extra antioxidants and so on? So no. Statins, on the other hand, we do we have any, any evidence that since introducing statins, heart disease has reduced? No. What we do have is indications that since putting in statins, heart failure has increased. Yes. We know that myopathy, which you described, Adam. So how do statins do that? Why do statins do that? Because they block a particular enzyme called HMG carbide reductase, and that enzyme is responsible for making CoQ10. Mm. CoQ10 is one of our major body antioxidants, so we make it ourselves in our body, one of our body's major antioxidants that protects things. So, yeah, we get muscle pain and energy problems and so on. Yeah. So just a, just a quick, it's, so it just seems like a natural trend of modern pharmaceutical medicine is that the thing that it promises to help, it actually does the opposite for. And now we can relate that back to the to the bogus V that we all shall not mention. But so what happens is it's meant to, it's promised to, you know, prevent this and make that and do this. And it does the complete opposite, not to mention ruin your heart health that we, we all know that we've all learned the teachings from Dr. McCullough. Um, so what happens is, so it seems to me that this miracle statin is actually the driver of many different things that make your body actually worse. I'm so glad that I actually took the, took the chance and come off it because I'm kind of like, I feel real good, you know, like I don't feel, I feel much better off it. Um, as fun, funnily enough, my energy levels have increased significantly since I've come off these uh, medications and that's and, and I'm 42, and that's the only medication that I've ever taken constantly. Um, so, well, basically, I don't take medicine anymore, so at all. Um, so, okay, that's very interesting. And I just I just like to tie that back to that. A statin seems like a drug, which you were saying before, which goes into an algorithm. Everybody's the same. You punch these codes in, you get this. Um, the the doctor who is now just the script printer prints off this receipt. You go to the pharmaceutical company, you pay your money, you make the billionaires richer, and then you get sicker from the medication that's being given. So um, that's tying it all back together for what you were saying. Exactly. And that's the whole pharmaceutical paradigm. We've done the same thing with antidepressants, which are another major, major category, you know, for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and, again, rather than work out why is this person not feeling good, are they depressed secondary to the fact that they've got a mitochondrial dysfunction and chronic fatigue syndrome? Because people with chronic fatigue syndrome do get secondary depression, but it's secondary, not primary. Are they depressed because they've got an inflammatory process affecting their brain? Are they just sad because, my goodness, they've had a partner die and they need to be allowed to grieve? You know, antidepressants are given to 
out to everyone like lollies, anyone who is a bit sad, a bit depressed. No, you know, you're not going to work it out. We're not going to find out why you're depressed. We will just suppress it. But again, like happens with so many of the other drugs, the body, the body tries to override that. So, so the body alters the receptors in the brain so that it becomes less effective. So what happens then? Well, they have to either change SSRIs or increase your dose because the body's basically trying to say, oh, don't do this. So it's just we, we, dulling we, you down. Yeah. Um, so my, my mother-in-law, I'm sorry, guys, I'm not, I'll let up, you all get your questions, I'm sorry, but I, I forget these, right? So, um, and, and I'm, I'm just excited. I, and, I, and Stephen's already seen me, he's going, da, 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 I can see. But uh, anyway, so my mother-in-law is a um, psychologist, okay? And, um, and, and she doesn't practice or anything like that because t- she's not with the Afro thing. She doesn't agree with, with any of that kind of stuff and, and you know, you, you've got to treat patients a certain way and you're not, t- you're not in, essence, in essence, you don't actually help them. You just keep ticking them along and you just keep collecting their money. So she can, she can, um, she can analyze you and, and fix you up in five sessions and you're out your door feeling much better about yourself and, and on a road to recovery. Um, but uh, what happens is, but uh, if she had to do it the Afro way or the, the governing body way, um, then no one would get better ever. So, um, but so I'm going to ask this question, and this is on behalf of her, is um, because she's doing an anecdotal. It's not scientific, but she's just slowly seeing this trend between antidepressants of women, and and we're not sure yet if we can tie it in with with male males taking antidepressants um, with their and their wives are taking antidepressants, and then it's transfer or if the male or the female and they have a baby. Are you seeing a trend, a link between antidepressants and autism? Is there now, a link maybe between that? I'll go underneath that. What the link is is that there are issues going on in the in the woman's body coming both from her gut, most likely from the gut, but other places as well, and both creating inflammation in the brain and mucking up the neurotransmitters. So there'll be zinc, magnesium, B6 deficiency issues. Those all to the neurotransmitters. So all this stuff is passed through to the child so that when the child is then given the routine injection protocols, um, they will flip. Okay. So it's, it's not so much necessarily the SSRIs themselves as what's going on in the woman underlying that gave the symptoms that made them prescribe the SSRIs. But yes, there will there will definitely end up being a, a correlation. There's a whole heap of things that are passing that are being transmitted transgenerationally that set up the new bugs for a problem once they hit the vaccine schedule. And maybe it is to do yeah. with diet, like you were saying, because it seems to me, just in my experience of going through school from like nine, when I was I was at school in like 1984 through you know, and no one really had we had a couple of naughty kids. And then you had like everyone was pretty much on average. There was no real big difference or disparagement between like you know this kid's got ADHD and it, and or this one's got autism and and that. And it just seems to me since you know probably through the nineties this explosion of kids with ADHD, kids with autism, something spectrum this or spectrum that. Um, and, and I'm really interested to see about your nutritional, like the nutrition stuff that you're talking about and gut health and all this kind of stuff. And then you're saying now that the correlations between what we're seeing now in our children and why we're having so much issues with education even is because of maybe, you know, what we're eating and what we're putting into our bodies 
in general. And Stephen's big on this as well because I know he's very into it. I learn a lot from him. But um, yeah, I'll let the other guys ask questions. But anyway, yeah, do you that's do you think the correlation between what we're diet change and stuff now is yeah, that Adam's, Adam's, Adam's yeah. going to leave now? Thanks, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. See ya. <laughs> So, so all of these things are multifactorial with all of them, with any condition, and this applies across the board, any condition. We've got genetic predispositions, right? But as I say to all my patients, the genes give you the ballpark you're going to play in. They don't determine where in the ballpark you are. You can determine where in the ballpark you are, but they give you the ballpark. So we have a genetic predisposition. Then we've got a whole heap of transmissible stuff that passes from the mother, some of it from the father, but most of it because the maternal environment is what the child is, is growing in and it's the maternal gut bacteria that pass on to the child before birth even and in, the, and in the birth process, so stuff coming through from the mother. Then we have the issue of the injections. Well, before that, the issue of, of what's happened around the birth process. We've got increasing numbers now of premature deliveries, increasing numbers, well, increasing numbers even before that of infertility that go through IVF and then your premature deliveries and then your intervention deliveries, all of this creates more stress and trauma on, on the child, not how it's meant to be or predominantly used to be. So so more stress on the child. Then the question of breastfeeding, have they been able to be breastfed or not, the question of early infections and antibiotics, that alters their system. We know now that even one dose of antibiotics will alter your protective gut bacteria by a factor of a thousandfold. And uh, a single dose of antibiotics has an effect on, on the children's neurodevelopment. So we're, we're learning all these things. Then we come to the injections. So, so on the injections, what's worth noting is that after 1986, and, and you've probably heard this, RFK talks about this quite a lot, in 1986 was the year that in the US the vaccine manufacturers were indemnified against any claims for side effects from the children's vaccine schedule, 1986. So if you look at the number of injections that are recommended or mandated effectively now for, for children, since 1986, that number has exploded, just absolutely exploded. And what's fascinating, if you, if you look at uh, neonatal mortality, and this is a really interesting question, not just neonatal, infant mortality, so this comes in, takes in the, that early time of those injections, so US spends a huge amount on, on health, on injections, on the pharmaceutical industry. They have the highest level of childhood vaccination. So wouldn't you think that if all of this was really good, that their infant mortality rates would be good? Yeah, you would think that. They're infant mortality. Yeah, they, they are actually down, I think it's about number 19th, but they're, they're down equivalent to, to Cuba, which has almost no childhood injections so so as you actually rate and there have been some who have done this as you actually look at your rates of infant mortality and graph it against the the injection level the vaccination level you see we've got a correlation going on so so we increased all the childhood injections from 1986 and they are still going and this this is said to be part of the push for why the covid injections have been put into the childhood schedule in, in the US because it gives them that same cover, let's say. So, so then we have the injections. Then we have the question after that of, of foods. And our diet has dramatically changed 
in the last 20, 30 years where we've got high levels of processed foods, high levels of, of added sugar, high levels of additives. And we have many cases now, and those of us who work in this field, you know, that I am, we, we do get in. I had one child come in, the mother brought her in, I think she was four when she was brought in, had been through all the hospitals and the dietitians and all the everything, but this child would not even let her parents sit at the table with coloured food. All she would eat was white bread, white rice, pasta, bit of chicken, white, white, white. Would not even, as I said, literally not even let anyone sit at the table. She wouldn't even look at, couldn't look at coloured food. Mm. So so this is this is where we're at. The kids are being so fed all this artificial stuff that and so clearly in that context, they are not developing normally. And so much so that last year, I think it was, I think it was only last year, USA, CDC changed the child development um, profiling, what, what's regarded as normal, so that the age of, for walking and speech was shifted. Isn't that interesting? So normal. So, so the, this, this trips a lot of people up. And I'm always saying to my, my guys, there's a difference between common and normal, big difference between common and normal. Just because something is common doesn't make it normal. We work on what's called the Bell distribution curve, which says that normal is anything that fits within, uh, I think it's 95%, uh, with a 2.5% either side. I might be wrong, it might be it might 94% with three other side. But anyway, but basically within this 90-odd percent is regarded as normal. And so what's happening if the whole of society is shifting? What's happening if the whole of the kids are shifting? Well, no, we don't go, oh, all the kids are abnormal. We just shift the bell distribution curve. We're doing this on our blood parameters all the time. I've watched them do this in medicine many times because I, I used to do lots of uh, particular types of blood tests, and at that time I was the main one doing them. So I, you know, I was putting lots of these these things through, and I watched as they as my results were always abnormal. So they had to shift the curve, didn't they? So the ranges changed. Huh. Interesting. See, uh, we're going we're going down a rabbit hole that we weren't expecting, but I love this sort of stuff because I've always been fascinated by nutrition, and partly because I'm interested in it, but also because uh, I did I did compete in some bodybuilding and fitness competitions in the past, and you need to know you know how you know the optimal nutrition that you know to get the best results for that, but also because I'm also gluten intolerant, so I've done a lot of research. I've I've read books like The Plant Paradox, which focuses on lectins and things. And from my research, I find a lot of this comes back to one issue. Now, we're, we're facing an epidemic, well, not an epidemic, but increases increased levels of allergies, gluten intolerance, uh, you know, lactose intolerance, uh, autoimmune issues, obesity. And through my research, it all seems to come back to one thing, and that's glyphosate. Do you have anything to say about glyphosate uh, and its effect upon the body? It doesn't come back to one thing. There's quite a lot of other factors, but glyphosate is one of those. Yeah. So glyphosate interrupts what we call the shikimate pathway, uh, and it interferes very much with particularly magnesium. So magnesium is a, a mineral that we need for a huge number of cellular functions. It, it is the most needed, really. We need it for all our neurotransmitters. We, we simply cannot function well without magnesium. And magnesium is a, a calming mineral. It sits on the brain NMDA receptors, which are the irritant receptors. Without magnesium, the brain is irritated. The brain is irritated on fire. So, yes, glyphosate is a big 
issue. And and as you would know from all the reading that, that you've done, Stephen, Australia is one of the countries that is still allowing glyphosate, whereas there are many other countries that have banned it. And and yep. more than just plain allowing it, we we now have so your other name for those who don't know, glyphosate is Roundup. Um, we now have Roundup resistant soy. So so and the government, and this was a number of years ago, uh, passed laws saying that we could use 200 times the amount of Roundup that was allowed before and so that it wouldn't kill the soy. Well, that's okay. Monsanto came along and gave us Roundup-resistant soy. So fine, we'll use the soy and we'll use Roundup and everybody's happy, or at least Monsanto are. Sorry, Roundup is in the weed. Exactly. It is not benign and we shouldn't use it. Yeah. Should not be used. So, but gut bacteria, Roundup does have an effect on the gut bacteria. Gut bacteria are the key. You can't get to get celiac disease, you need three things. You need the celiac gene, you need exposure to gluten, but you need the wrong gut bacteria. Yeah, from my understanding, glyphosate is almost like uh, it, it kind of wipes out your your gut bacteria. So there's kind of like no nothing there to kind of uh, eat away at the gluten and eat away at the lectins and stuff like that. So there's no like real defense for the body against those things. Yeah, no, it does have an effect on gut bacteria. It doesn't wipe them out because we've got so many different types of gut bacteria, but it will take out some of our more protective ones. The gut bacteria actually, if you've got the wrong gut bacteria, particular types of these bacteria actually make an enzyme that blocks the enzyme that our body needs to break down gluten. So gluten isn't so much broken down by the gut bacteria. Gluten is broken down by us in the small intestine with a very specific enzyme, but it's a rate-limited enzyme. We don't have much of it. So if we've got the wrong gut bacteria, they interrupt that. And then the gluten doesn't get broken down. It becomes allergenic, irritates the gut wall, inflames the gut wall. You get leaky gut, la, 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 la. Yeah, okay. So, Is there a good source that you yeah. would point us to to healing the microbiome? Sorry, can you say that oh, again? Sorry. It didn't come across. Is there a good source you could point us to to healing the microbiome? Because it sounds like a lot of things a lot of things are connected to our gut bacteria, our microbiome. Uh, you know, and, and, and that it's been under assault for many things even prior to COVID. Uh, and, it, you know, a lot of people going forward are going to be interested in what can we do now to help undo the damage, protect ourselves, and it sounds like the microbiome is a key to that, unless I've misunderstood. And how? what would you point people to? And we're not getting good advice. We're not getting good advice from our doctors. We're certainly not getting good advice from OPERA or the World Health Organization. Um, uh, what would you point us to, uh, if I'm correct, about uh, helping heal our, our microbiome? You're absolutely correct. So I, I like to try and keep things fairly simple. And often a good way to think of stuff is to go back, let's think, say primitive, go back to simple things. So even just a couple of generations ago, our kids used to, as kids, we used to just play in the dirt, right? We'd, we'd, we'd be playing in dirt. We'd be covered in mud and, and, and out there and all of this sort of stuff. So one of the big things that we've done wrong is this keep our kids clean deal. We need kids need to be able to be eating dirt, playing in dirt, getting covered in dirt because our gut bacteria actually is a reflection of, of the external environment. 
we're meant to have gut bacteria profile that looks more like soil. Mm. So we, you know, we need to get back to the primitive eating playing in dirt. So kind of step one, let kids get dirty. <laughs> yeah. And then the next thing, yeah, your next thing is the foods. So when we eat, the first thing we feed is our gut bacteria, not us. Yeah. It's the gut bacteria we feed first. So if we are eating high refined carbohydrates and sugars and artificial processed foods, that cannot feed the right gut bacteria. It's not food for them. Mm. Instead, it's the wrong ones that will actually make poisons for us out of those sugars. It irritates the gut lining. It interacts with the brain. It interacts with the immune system. The story goes on. But so, so the next thing is our food. So get rid of the sugars. Get rid of the refined carbohydrates. Hydrates and and ideally wheat. We really should get rid of wheat. Wheat is a recent introduction in the human diet. When you look at human history, we need to go back to ancient grains. So rye, oats, millet, barley, ancient grains. Spelt is an ancient form of wheat, and we need to go back to doing it the way it used to be done historically, which was slow, slow sourdough fermentation processes. Any breads we eat needs to be done that way. So, so we change our diet, get rid of the white refined, get rid of all of those, eat much more green veg. We need to eat a lot more green veg. A lot of people say, hey, I'm doing well, I eat tons of fruit. Well, historically, if we think about it, the fruit that we used to be able to get, anyone know the old crab apples and, you know, things like that, they were small, they were dense, they were nutrient-packed, but they weren't amazingly, incredibly super sweet. So what have we done with? changed all our fruits and changed all our things now so they've got a high water content, high sugar content, so they no longer contain the same amount of goodness that they used to. So we shouldn't be eating too much fruit. Instead, we need to be eating a lot more vegetable, nuts, seeds, old-fashioned legumes, all, all of these sorts of things. But legumes have to be correctly you know, uh, prepared. They've got to be soaked and soaked so that the steam and the lectins um, uh Altered, let's say. So, so, so change the diet. Go back to old-fashioned ways of eating, traditional ways of eating. So we change the diet. Then we need to learn how to, to treat illnesses without using antibiotics and drugs because yes. antibiotics destroy the friendly gut bacteria. Your pharmaceuticals will have effects on the friendly gut bacteria. So, so we need to then learn how to, how to eat well, how to live well, how to do other things to, to treat illnesses. And there's so many things you can do there. It, this is, again, in all of my guys, I, I, I'm, I'm, I train them up to how to treat things themselves so that if they know if they get sick right, they already know they do this, 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 this. Then they can call me and I say, okay, now add this, this. And um, training them and arming them with stuff so that they can do it. And that's that's how we've, we've got to go. Um, what else can I say? I mean, there's, there's so many levels to Oh, broths, fermented, traditional fermented foods, bone broths. So, again, traditional things. The bone broths help, help heal the gut lining. The fermented foods are helping get the right bacteria, gut bacteria. It sounds, yeah. it sounds like you have to reinvent uh, medicine. We look forward to uh, the reinvention of medicine under what you're discussing. Adam, did you have something that you – I have a bit of a dark turn that I'd, I'd like to take at some no. point. 
go down your dark turn because I'm just I'm just amazed and I'm watching because I'm not so I'm a massive Coca Cola drinker. I know and now I'm like I've got to get rid of the Coke. I know, I know I've got to do it. I know, but I'm just kind of like, that's the last thing. What's interesting, Adam, is going to be to see what your cholesterol does when you get rid of it, because okay. the Coke is keeping your system in a sympathetic nervous system state. It is keeping your system in a stress state. Okay. I'm going to go do this yeah, blood yeah. test. I'm going to do this blood test before I get rid of the Coke. And then what yeah. I'm going to do is then I'll go, like I'll wait like three months and then I'll go do it again and then we'll yeah. see. But if the results haven't changed, I'm going back to Coke. Okay. <laughs> I'll guarantee you they will. So will you. All right. All right. Paul, go down your dark turn. I'm just blown away by all this. Oh, uh, yeah. It's amazing. It really is. And I, I'm, it's a... a New, bit of a new world for me because I wasn't aware of many of these and, and up until last few years. The last few years has been, you know, a real education for me. Uh, everything that you're saying would have been true even up to three years ago. But now we're in a bit of a different world. And, you know, we have done this mRNA experiment all throughout the world. The effects of the immune system uh, on, 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 you know, with the spike protein injection, the effects of the spike protein you know, the immune priming uh, and 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 the lipid nanoparticles, we're kind of in a different world of, of, of health. And it also seems like, you know, people have set themselves up for multiple reinfections and depending on what their vaccination status is or vaccination status, it, it determines, you know, it has multiple effects on the immune system that I'm only beginning to understand and would you? I'd be interested to hear what are we looking at going forward, given what we've done to ourselves. Um, what do you see happening over the next couple of years? Some people say, "Okay, well, COVID's over and everything seems back to normal." There's Gerd van den Bosch's hypothesis that uh, we're going to have an increasingly virulent variant, and even if not, there's the immune priming and the and the the IgG4 antibody switching that would lead to chronic infections. What do you see happening? That's a really tough question. And, and it, it's, so I, I I'm kind of want to be a little hesitant in answering because I don't, what I don't want to do is to scare people. What I want to do instead is to arm people with hope and with things that they can do. Because there is always hope and there's, there is always things that we can do. The, the challenge that we have with, with these uh, mRNA injections is that we still don't know actually exactly what is being injected. Even when you just talk at the question of the mRNA, we know that the amount of mRNA in the injections varies dramatically, whether it's deliberate, whether it's just poor manufacturing practices, the fact that this stuff is supposed to be kept cold chain, and obviously it's not always going to be kept as cold chain as they say it should be for the mRNA to be stable and so on. So the mRNA alone uh, is a question. When the mRNA breaks down, it breaks down into stuff called microRNA. And the this is a, another question again because we're still trying to work out because each different little bit of microRNA will encode for something different what the total mRNA encoded for. So, so we've got microRNA floating around as well and we really don't know what all of that's going to encode for. And that's just the mRNA bit. Then there's the lipid nanoparticles and the, the lipid nanoparticles are toxic. 
they're highly what's called cationic, means they're positive, while our cell membranes are negative, so they would it was designed deliberately positive so it would stick to our cell membrane so then it could deliver everything inside. And this is the mechanism part of how it gets into the nucleus, you know, because these cationic particles are sticking to everything. So, so we've got the cationic particles. Then there, there's been evidence from around the world looking at other contaminants that are in there. So we certainly know that we've got metal, mineral contaminants, varies a little bit in the different labs that have looked at. Then there's questions of, of other contaminants, which I, I won't go into because that's all still uh, controversial and we're still trying to work out how to prove that. But bottom line is we still don't really know exactly what's being injected. So that is, is one part of the problem. The next part of the problem is that the profiles of what we're seeing coming out from this is like anything and everything. Never before has there been such a wide range of side effects coming from any medical intervention that we've done. It covers absolutely anything, pretty much. We're seeing new disease processes that have never been seen before. We're inventing new names to cover these new things that, that have not been seen before. And, and so what a person's going to present with largely depends, a bit like I said before, your genetic predisposition, the ballpark you're going to play in, and the load of what you already had. Did you already have hidden infections in your system? Did you already have latent herpes viruses in your system? Did you already have a nasty gut profile? Did you already have an immune disorder or an immune dysfunction? Did you already have any hint of cardiovascular disease, whatever, you know? And so the side effects come in sections. So you can divide it out both in terms of organ systems because we've got different side effects with different organ systems, or you can map it out in terms of time. So certainly in terms of time, we know that our first major spike of side effects is occurring in the first couple of days to two weeks. Then we've got another spike around uh, month, five week kind of mark. Then we've got another spike happening at, at a few month mark. Our big question that, that we've got lots of hints on is what's going to happen further down the line. So the initial things will be, so of course your first spike is our sudden deaths, is your, your large big first spike, then our cardiac deaths. So that, that kind of takes you, your first section. But in that, we're also seeing your activation of your viruses. We're seeing accelerate, uh, alteration of immune system and immune system diseases and all of those things in that, that kind of category. And then coming from around the sort of the five-month-ish mark, usually it takes a few months to take off, we're seeing what they're calling turbo cancers. So bizarre cancers in people who've either never had cancer before or had cancer that was quiescent, suddenly accelerating and just, just taking off. And cancers in unusual parts of the body and so on. So we've got the turbo cancers and then our big long-term question is what's going to happen with neurodegenerative diseases we already have, are seeing a spike, well, increasing, I mean, there's a spike there, but increasing levels of, of dementia. We've already got a little flag occurring with Jakob Kutzfeldt disease, which is your mad cow disease, scrapey spongiform encephalopathy, brain turning to mush. So we've, we're already starting to see these things. So the long-term outcome, it's, it, it is truly like nothing the medical system has ever seen before. And we are grappling to get our head around it. What what 
what is going on and what do we do with it. But having said that, there are there are numbers of us around the place who are looking intently at, at what are the pathogenic mechanisms and, and what can we do to block those and help reverse those. There are quite a few things that have come out already um, and they're, you know, I'm part of an Australian group. We're, we're trying to really nut down a very tight protocol around all of that. So lots of work being done to to help, you know, bring hope and to be able to say, okay, guys, this is what you do. But nonetheless, the baseline, uh, I've put together a thing called the Healthy 100 program, which is on my website. But the baseline is people still need to learn how to get their basic health right. There's no no point going to fancy supplementation you know, to deal with these other illness processes, if our baseline is still crap, if we're still eating drinking Coca-Cola, eating crap food, you know, not exercising, locking ourselves in our offices, you know, never seeing the sunlight, never connecting the ground, if we don't know how to breathe, if we're not drinking clean water and so on, if we're not sleeping properly, if we don't get the baseline right, then no amount of extra supplementation is going to actually fix things. The baseline's got to be right. And having said that, then they have found there are a couple of studies now being published that have shown uh, so long COVID is pretty much injection side effects. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah. yeah, as most people getting COVID are multiply vaxxed. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, a study just come out showing, and this was a nurse's health study, so it was uh, many thousands. I'm trying to, oh, no, that one actually came down to, I think, to being about 1,800. But anyway, it was in thousands. And they showed in that study that having a, ba- a basic healthy lifestyle, and they used six different parameters, a basic healthy lifestyle protected them against long COVID. So, so and that's in a group that are injected, of course, for, you know, work and nurses. So, so yes, healthy lifestyle. That really, it does come back to that. No point just doing supplements if they don't. We don't get healthy lifestyle right. Yeah. So, for people we care about, we should go like first. We should go to your website and look at the Healthy One Hundred, as well as some other. Would you mind talking about your website a little bit? And then after that, uh, the supplements are about uh, our mineral content and that effect on the immune system and being able to bulwark ourselves against the assault of, of, of disease and taking care of latent diseases. But I guess first to your, to your website, is that what you would? Yeah. yeah. So I've got a number of videos on the website, but, but I've, I said, I've got the healthy 100 program. People can just look at the couple of videos on it, take the basis from that. If they want to deep dive into the full program, it's, it's 14, one and a half to two hour videos. So it goes quite in depth if people really want the in-depth. But you can get the ideas from the, yeah, there it is. You can get the ideas from um, from just the, the videos attached to the Healthy 100. So the idea, beautiful, thank you. See, the idea there is it's a wheel of life, the idea that if we're going to live healthily for a long time that it has to roll well and be balanced. So there's seven spokes to it. Air, breathe, air is about both the air we breathe and, and how we breathe. So if you're smoking, stop, like just stop. Light. We need to have time out in sunlight every day. We need to be connecting. And that, the light is part of the electromagnetic spectrum, so it's also talking about the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum. Water, we're 70% water. We are born, we develop in water. You know, we, we're born and develop out, out of water. We are still 60 to 70% water. So water is crucial. The type of water we drink, drinking water, sleep, rest, recreation, we must sleep. Sleep is non-negotiable as far as our body is concerned and our brain is concerned. 
our brain only detoxes when we're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Recreation. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we tend to in the West, don't we? we get too busy and say, I'm too busy to sleep. I've got too much else I want to do. But, you know, no. So those two videos talk about it. And there's just some other testimonies. So, yeah, well, that, that's baseline. Unfortunately, uh, in an election campaign, we don't get any sleep. But uh, <laughs> just to take things a little bit political right now, um, I, I do need to touch on One Nation's health policy. Now, apart from obviously building hospitals and promoting doctors in the bush and things like that, part of our policy is to have a truly comprehensive and independent uh, investigation into um, the pandemic and the handling of the pandemic by the health minister, Brad Hazard. Um, and obviously throughout the uh, the new parliamentary period, we, we plan to do a lot of committees, a lot of uh, forums, parliamentary forums, investigating what went on during the pandemic to really expose the lies and the policy failures and everything that went on. Now, obviously, with a lot of uh, parliamentary committees, people can make submissions and uh, and, and put, put across their point of view. Uh, if you had any sort of involvement in that or if you could pose any sort of questions, what areas would you like to investigate uh, above others? Well, well there, there, there's less. The first thing, the simplest thing, first off, is telling people to wear a mask when the WHO themselves already knew that they were ineffective. Australia already had a... Uh, pandemic and influenza pandemic preparedness thing that was published in August 2019, as part of which it said we have no evidence for um, PPEs, masks in, in the community. There is no evidence for it. So, so we already knew that. Our government should have known that. The World Health Organisation already knew that, and yet the masks were put out. So I think that's, that's such a simple step number one, and you can still see so many people walking around in fear with masks on. Today, still today. Yeah. yeah, still now. Not aware that not only are they ineffective, but they are actually increasing their own risk of getting disease, of getting uh, COVID and increasing their own mortality. This is data that came out from Europe, 35 billion people last winter. It's like it increases the risk of getting both COVID and, and dying from it. So masks. Uh, second question, again, lockdown. Never in history has quarantining of the healthy been done. So, so these are two huge issues that really, when you look at them, we're all about testing compliance and all about population control. Zero to do with health. So I think they're two big ones that, that have got to get nailed on the question of, as I said, population control, personal rights. I don't want to wear a mask. Or should I? Where's your proof that my wearing a mask stops me getting someone else sick? There is none. Yeah, and because there is a big issue. Yeah, I, I, was, I was at Penrith Plaza today and uh, a lot of people, especially older people, were wearing the mask. And one guy that I was talking to, he's a lovely guy, but he worked for New South Wales Health. He worked at uh, Westmead and he was wearing the mask. So a lot of uh, you know, health professionals are kind of on board with, uh, with everything. And I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with APRA, and I, a question that I wanted to ask you about APRA, do you think it's sensible uh, for uh, health professionals to be uh, kind of regulated by a central control body? 
I mean, look, I can understand that you want to use the excuse that, you know, we, we might have a few rat bags out there that we, we want to be able to stop. Sure, there are always bad eggs in every basket. You will find an occasional rat bag that, that needs to be dealt with. But the level of control we've got now such that there is no room whatsoever for individual clinical skill, acumen, choice, modalities, whatever, however you want to put it, that there's no room for any of that is entirely wrong. And it is it means that you are treating both every doctor and every person and every patient as if they've all come out of one mould and it's one mould, one treatment, one... And that, that's just not how Mark works. You know, we're, we're all different people. We're all biochemically different. We're, we are, we are, every person is unique. Every person is unique, totally unique. And so that has to be taken in account in our medical system. It, it, it has to be. We have to make allowances for those doctors who choose to practice in slightly different ways with different emphases and different ways of doing it, providing, I mean, I, I had not had one single patient complained in my, my 35 years of practice. Um, so I couldn't be doing too much wrong. Um, so, so yeah, if you can't you can't have an over. As soon as you seek to to do too much control and legislation, it's really it's, it's like the SSRIs. You just level everything out. We'll just have a level playing field here. Okay, well that means anything tall gets squashed, and anything that wasn't down here is artificially pulled up. And okay, there's our level playing field. It doesn't work. Wow. And would you um, what 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 would your thoughts be? And I don't have to don't attack. You don't have to attack. I could imagine from what you've been saying, like you know, like you know, we're taking advice from a health officer, Kerry Chant, and you know, who has no real clinical experience at all. I think she's just got the doctorate. You know, like, and then obviously with the narrative was, you know, stay at home. Um, the vaccine it prevents transmission and all those kind of things. Where did they pull this information from? Because obviously Janine Small, the European Court, she said that that Pfizer had never said that it would stop transmission. So where do they get this information from, and how do they still? And I got you must cringe because you're. I wish you were my doctor. I wish you were my doctor. I wish there was a hundred of you, right? Because maybe we'd all be much healthier than we actually are. Maybe we could do you out of a job because you'd treat us properly. But, you know, like how is this, you know, you know, so, you know, how how is it that they're getting this information? How is it in good conscience that they can be saying these things when there's no evidence for it? And, and as a matter of fact, they're still pushing five, number five. Yeah. You know, and there's advertisers on TV. I don't watch TV and, and I saw TV for two seconds and there was an ad oh you know update yourself you got Kerry Chant on there going well yay you know get number five and everything's going to be great and we know it builds up in your body we know it's more toxic we know it's going to probably kill you so well that's speculation but we know it's probably going to do that so what's what's your how do we how what do we do can we get her out and get you in what can we do (laughs) actually I'll just touch on that last bit um who did this analysis come from don't think it was Wilson's sign, but anyway, there has been a recent analysis that showed that for for each vaccine there is an increased mortality of seven percent. So for the fifth one, we're talking thirty five percent increased mortality. So yes, I mean that's that's not small, is it? You know, uh, this is this is the frustration of many of us, you know, re- real clinicians, that that those who are pumping out this stuff are either not medically trained at all 
or only have a degree and, and have not been in clinical practice, they're, they're let's say, acad academic medicos. Now, there are some very good academic medicos in their academic fields, but I wouldn't want any of them treating me. Thank you. Mm. So it's a major, major problem. And then, of course, we've got Tedros uh, heading up the World Health Organization. So is he a medical doctor? No. Is he? No, you know, <laughs> probably not. No, he's not uh, at all. Uh, he doesn't even, have, you know, no medical training. So, so you know, we have to we have to start looking at this. Well, hang on, what actually are the qualifications of these talking heads who, who are telling us what to do? So, what's the basis that they are coming from? So, certainly, we know from all of what they're saying that they simply are not reading the literature. They simply are not. But, but yeah. there again, most GPs aren't either, right? Most doctors are spoon-fed stuff by the pharmaceutical industry and that's what they read. The stuff that they're spoon-fed, they have the pharmacy reps come in, they might read the little medical journal things, Ausdoc and, and so on, but do they actually go reading papers and researching stuff themselves? Most of them, not. Uh, and this, this is, uh, you know, this is the, the problem with the pharmaceutical industry owning medicine. And pharmaceutical industry, again, so Elizabeth Hart has done wonderful work looking at it all on, on her website, looking at the conflicts of interest across all of our top medical colleagues. And so. Elizabeth Hart, worth, worth tracking her down, but she's done great stuff on conflicts of interest. So she'd be an interesting one to have on if you want to hear all about conflicts of interest. She can give you plenty on that. She knows, she knows more. Yeah, it is awesome. not what it seems, and that's the problem. Oh. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, we've gone a little bit over time than we normally would, but we could ask a whole bunch more questions, I'm sure, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, if you give us half a chance, we will. But I want to give I want to give uh, Paul the last question because I know Paul's always, uh, you know, he reaches out to me before the show and he gives me all a list of questions that he wants to ask and he makes me feel very, very small because his knowledge... Is uh is very very big, yeah. So Paul, <laughs> all right. Um, so in terms of our immune system and all the assaults that we're under now, um, and we have, if we all have friends and family we want to take care of different different statuses as far as uh, the injections and and our genetics and things like that. Um, what is the best way you think that we can try to help people? with some of some of what might be coming there's your website is one of the things we could point to uh is there and and you've given us a lot of information about you know natural health and things along those lines uh is there anything else that you want to say that we can do moving forward for the for the people we care about yeah look um in in terms of sites other sites that have got really good stuff so world council for health uh, I was on their steering committee for a while and, you know, Tess is a great woman. So World Council for Health, they've got a, quite a list of suggested supplements and things that can be put in to help treat conditions. So that's a good place to start. The Mind Foundation, M-I-N-D-D, yeah, World Council for Health, that's it. So up there about resources. If you go into resources of World Council for Health, then you'll you'll be able to find uh, quite a list of things that, that you can look at. So there's a lot of things there. Yeah, so World Council for Health. The Mind Foundation. 
MINWD has got, uh, this, this is largely, this was originally set up, we set this up back in, so Leslie Embersets was the lady who first started and I was on the foundation, the founding board back in early 2000s. Um, so she has a list uh, of accredited practitioners who've been through the MIND training. And so these are all practitioners who know very well about interactions of gut to the immune system, to the brain, about your foods and so on. So while they were originally coming at it from the point of view of your children's neurodevelopmental disorders, a large part of what they've got there is going to shift across into, you know, what we're talking about here now. And I dare say pretty much all the practitioners on the mind list would be up on what's going on with the injections and, and how to treat them. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and how can people follow you, Robin, if they've really enjoyed this episode and they want to keep up to date with what you're doing? I try to keep my website with all the videos and interviews and things I've done. Uh, I'm not yet up on Rumble, but other people put my stuff around the place, so there is stuff that can be found on, you know, Rumble and BitChute and, and so on, and I kind of just keep popping up all over the place so <laughs> they can just follow, I guess. You're just really? hiding in the dark web there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, I'm just going to, before Stephen wraps us up a little bit, thank you very much for everything that you've done. It's not easy. And we've all, in our own way, we're all kind of warriors for health. Um, you know, we might not, I might not practice all the healthy things that I need to, but we're all warriors for health because we know that there's definitely something wrong with the medical system. And it just seems to be an industry built up for the pharmaceutical companies to keep people strung along. So, you know, yeah, we're living longer, but we're living sicker. To be honest with you, I'd rather probably die at 60 but have an awesome life doing it, you know. Like, you know, I mean, I want to live to 100, don't get me wrong, but what I'm saying is, like, it's, um, you know, it's not good to do that, to live in ill health and be a burden on people. So, um, I'd just like to say one more time, thank yeah. you very much. And I'm going to follow, I watched a few of your podcasts and stuff today and I was absolutely blown away. And um, and you give you give a lot of people and regular people and, and we're, I'm a simple person, I, hope of, you know, just making our lives in turn better. So, um, and, and through yeah. simple things like gut health, like eating properly and, you know, get the, the Cokes will go and then we'll, um, and then, and that's it, you know, so. Thank you very much for that. And, um, you know, I really do appreciate everything that you've done. Thanks, Adam. I can just want to throw a quick thing in on that. I'm going to touch on that thing about living longer. The people who are living longer than ever before are the people who were born before the Second World War. That's the group that are living longer than ever before. They are now dying off. When you look at the, the patterns of what's happening for those born, those born after that, they are living shorter. And, in fact, we are now in a situation where I started uh, lecturing on this about five years ago now and the data has caught up with it where our children are going to shortly us unless we change things. That's a bombshell as far as I'm concerned. Bombshell. Wow. Uh, that's, that's not a good bombshell, don't get me wrong. That's a bad That's a bad bombshell. Scary. <laughs> that is yeah, scary. Far yeah. out. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Robin, for coming on. Uh, it's been a while that, you know, an effort for, to track you down, but it was definitely worth it. Uh, to, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate you as always. And, and Paul, again, thank you. 
Uh, you always add a lot to these uh, episodes. So uh, if you've enjoyed this, please share it far and wide. Uh, it's up to our viewers really to get this information out there. So if you can share it to all your friends, uh, you know, especially as Paul always tries to highlight people that may be suffering from health issues, share this to them. Uh, maybe they can get some value out of it. So thank you very much for everyone uh, who, who watched this episode and we'll see you next time. Thank see you. you later. Thank you for having me on.